artificial intelligence software isn't like other software, especially when it comes to acquiring it and licensing it. The data requirements to ensure lack of bias in AI and transparency in how it works, those just aren't part of the standard license agreements. This is all the subject of a study by the School of Business at George Mason University. And here with some of the warnings, the study author and senior fellow, Benjamin McMartin. Mr. McMartin, good to have you on. Hey, Tom. Great to be on. So you looked at contracting for artificial intelligence. And what are the big differences? It's just software, but maybe not. So at its core, yeah, it's software and should be easy enough. But there are elements of AI that are particular and actually create some challenges within the acquisition environment. The Center for Government Contracting at George Mason, as well as my co-author, Major Andy Bound, who is the chief counsel of the MIT AI Accelerator in the Air Force, really looked at some of the current challenges that DOD is having in procuring AI software technologies, particularly when it comes to licensing. And what are some of the challenges? The department and honestly, the federal government are looking at the issue of responsible AI. So how do we look at AI technologies and identify whether there are inherent biases, whether we're able to explain the results that we get? And so while you may not be able to explain why Spotify has recommended certain songs for you or why Tinder has sent you on a certain date, In the Department of Defense, we must be able to identify and explain the results that we get from AI software. The results and the impact of the results are much more dire. And so those are the type of issues that we looked at on this paper, which is how do we develop licensing schemes within the current constructs that allows the department to get the type of information that you need to actually explain the results that you get from artificial intelligence? Well, isn't that just embodied in the logic of the AI, just as any outcome with software is embodied in its logic? So you you may be able to get results out of your AI and understand that, hey, I got results based on some algorithm. The question for the department is, can you actually have access to that? Most of these technologies are not being developed within the department. They're being developed in private industry at very high private expense. And so these are big upfront investments that companies are making. The department traditionally has looked for licensing rights and technologies that allow them to do a few things. And these are no surprise, right? What do I want to do with data rights? I want to make sure I don't get locked into a vendor. I want to make sure that I have the data that I need to do test and evaluation and sustain systems for a long, long time. But even that level of data rights does not give me the access I need to explain what was the background data. How was this developed? Why am I getting the results that I'm getting based on the background data? These are traditionally not things that are developed and delivered under a traditional DFARS, Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation Supplement Data Rights License Scheme. Got it. We're speaking with Benjamin McMartin. He's a senior fellow at the George Mason University School of Business's Center for Government Contracting and an attorney, we should also point out. So what can be done? What is the Air Force and the Navy and the Army? They're all pursuing this, what can they do? The purpose of the study that we did, again, in partnership with George Mason and the MIT AI Accelerator with the Air Force, was to create a framework 
a practical framework for how acquisition professionals across DOD and honestly across the federal government can look at licensing that does two things. One, it gives access to the type of background data that you would need to understand the results that you're getting from AI solutions. But two, it gives the opportunity to balance. And this is an issue that we kept at the forefront of our paper is the more data and background data that you ask for from industry, the higher likelihood that folks are not going to want to work with you. And so you have to over-communicate what you're using this data for, what the limits of the use of the data are for, and how those custom licensing structures are going to work. This is a challenge. This is a communication challenge to be able to say to a company, I'm going to need your background data. I understand in your commercial practice, you don't give that to anybody. It is not part of your business model. For DOD's uses, we're going to need to look at it, but we're going to procure a license to it. It'll be limited and you'll understand exactly what we can and can't do with it. And so in our paper, we've provided that framework going through all of the DOD's responsible AI principles, which honestly were developed out of national policy and promoted by the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. And they've done a great job of identifying what those principles are. Yeah, so the government is highly aware of this limitation in current licensing. Is there anything in the FAR or the DFAR that can enable this type of licensing request in the first place? Do we need a DFAR update? So the nice part about the DFARs is, contrary to what a lot of people might say, it's pretty flexible. It's got the opportunity, and in fact, it encourages the development and negotiation of specially negotiated license rights. Now, there are some limits, but for example, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center through the Tradewinds OTA is finding a lot of success in going outside of DFARS and drafting these custom licensing agreements that are pretty close to what you could get with DFARS, but there are some nuance. But within the DFARS licensing scheme, our framework that we're proposing through our study and our white paper provides you examples of how you can achieve this within the current framework of the DFARS or under OTAs, which gets you even more flexibility. But ultimately, there are going to be some issues that are going to come up in the future. And we expect these will be the subject matter of future white papers, which is ultimately through machine learning, there is a point where the machine is developing the data. And the current DFARS scheme is based on who has developed the data and who has funded the data, there becomes a point in machine learning where the machine has developed the data and the current scheme has not been developed to understand how that will work. And what about the source code? Because that could be also something required to have full transparency and the audit capability that DOD wants in AI software. Can that be part of this mix also? Absolutely. So source code, especially when it comes to machine learning models and, and artificial intelligence, is key to understanding how the algorithms have developed, how they've modified, how they've learned. And ultimately, you need to know what the input data is and the source code is to understand the, the outputs that you're getting. The scheme that we're proposing, however, through our white paper is that those should be special licenses put aside. There shouldn't be a one license fits all for these type of acquisitions. You should sit down and say, okay, source code, this is super important for us for a couple purposes and for a limited amount of time. 
we are going to negotiate a very narrow, very specific license for that piece of it. And then for other stuff, there'll be larger licenses. Ultimately, companies want to sell to the Department of Defense, but they want to make sure they maintain their competitive advantage on the commercial market. And honestly, they want to make sure that they remain a preferred customer for federal agencies as well. And so you really have to get in the weeds on each type of data or software and negotiate those as custom license agreements. So the issue then is not what's in the FAR, the DFAR, or the law or regulations. It's simply a matter of trust and being able to craft very detailed one-off or bespoke contract licensing agreements as you adopt AI? AI suffers the same challenges as a lot of federal acquisition and its communication. Ultimately, the policy of the regulation is to only negotiate the license rights you need for the purposes you need them for. The policy has never changed. There's a couple issues there. One is communication and this need to inform industry that these are the purposes that we're going to use this for. There are the flexibilities in the law to allow us to do this. The policy demands it. And honestly, the policy benefits both industry and government for that. The second piece Tom, to that is education. And I am encouraged by congressional actions in the last two NDAAs to promote and find money for AI literacy among the acquisition workforce, which is needed because these are not things that folks are going to find on a template. You actually have to sit down and develop these agreements and understand the technology, at least to a degree where you can competently advise on license terms. Attorney Benjamin McMartin is a senior fellow at the George Mason University School of Business's Center for Government Contracting. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to his paper at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has you know been at the highest levels and all. But I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, And uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, 
He took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense. And I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, Um, you know, from historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so 
I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people ask me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.